For Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, the Seattle March for Our Lives, we talk with co-lead organizer Rhiannon Resaretnam about what this Saturday's march is all about. This march is going to be a reminder to the legislators that we are watching them and we will vote and we will make sure that if they are not upholding our voices and addressing our concerns that they won't have a spot anymore. And then Indivisible's political director, Mari Urbina, breaks down the candidate endorsement process for Indivisible groups. And she talks about why Indivisible recommends that groups undertake this process. The people agency and power in endorsements is really powerful and that's what we're leaning into in this program. All that's coming up, so stay with us. Tahoma High School student Rhiannon Rasaretnam is one of the lead organizers for the March for Our Lives Seattle, which is happening this Saturday, March 24th, in solidarity with the Washington, D.C. March, organized by the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Rhiannon Rasaretnam, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. So first, just tell us very briefly how you came to be one of the lead organizers with the Seattle March. So I heard about the March for Our Lives Um, demonstration happening in Washington, D.C., and I knew that this was a cause that I wanted to support, so I went on Facebook uh, to look for my, the local one in Seattle, and I didn't see anything posted yet, and so I decided to take it upon myself to create an event for it, and then from there, um, I met Amelia Allard, who was Um, working on the Instagram page and had also created her own Facebook page. And from there, we decided to work together. That's extraordinary. And I have to say, you know, organizing a march in a major American city is a lot for anybody to take on, even if they weren't a full-time high school student also. Uh, How are you, how are you juggling it all? How are you managing? Um, Well, I'm not that great at time management in general. So (laughs) this has definitely forced me to, um, make sure I'm allocating my time correctly. Um, But it's great because I'm taking mostly online classes through Running Start. Uh, So it allows me to be a little bit more flexible um, in terms of schoolwork. Well, let's talk about the march. Um, Before we get into the details of the march coming up. I want to ask you, as a young person who grew up with the reality of school shootings with uh, lockdown drills uh, and and also with school shootings happening so frequently, there was one that happened in eastern Washington just last year. There was one in Marysville in 2014. I'm wondering, were you surprised by the response to the students at Stoneman Douglas and by how they are effectively changing the narrative on guns in this country? I think it was definitely different this time because now we have the actual victims themselves standing up and calling for change. And what was even more inspiring to students like me was that, um, you know, seeing Emma Gonzalez, for example, speaking at a rally, she's my age. And it was easier for me to see myself reflected in her than in the past when we had you know, parents and teachers advocating for gun control. And so it's been very empowering to see youth up on TV, youth um, holding their their legislators accountable. And it kind of gives um, students like me that energy and passion 
to know that we can actually affect change. Yeah, I think you, along with the students at Stoneman Douglas, are emerging as real leaders in all of this. Um, so the March for Our Lives Seattle is meant to call attention to gun violence against youth. It begins at 10 a.m. at Cal Anderson Park, and it's going to feature some speakers, including Mayor Durkin. Uh, who else will we be hearing from? We're hoping to get other uh, major elected officials as well. Nothing's been confirmed yet, but what we do want to make sure that our message is centered around our actual victims of gun violence, especially youth. Um, and so that's going to be the major theme of our rally and of our march, is making sure we're amplifying the voices of those who have been directly impacted by gun violence, especially in marginalized communities. Yeah. And so, and, and around that, you're asking for some specific actions on gun safety. What are they? So one major thing is banning any accessories that allow for guns to fire more than they were intended to. So for example, that would be, include bump stocks right. and high capacity magazines. Um, and we want this to be implemented on the federal scale. In addition to um, raising the age for gun purchases from 18 to 21. And uh, something that ties back directly to us is making sure that teachers are not armed in schools because this is something that um, we believe will only perpetuate the problem and this is not something that teachers sign up to do. They sign up to educate and spread knowledge, not to um, act as a mechanism of defense against school shooters. And you're also asking, uh, you're calling on members of Congress and corporations to stop uh, accepting support uh, from or providing support for the NRA, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a major piece um, because we can't allow money to dictate policy anymore. We need to make sure, again, that these elected officials are being held accountable um, to what they pass. And again, this, these are issues that directly impact the youth. And so this movement is all about showing how um, they need to listen to us. So just going back to your list of more legislative type demands, uh, I'd like to get your take on this year's legislative session in Olympia. Uh, the legislature did manage to pass a bump stock ban, uh, which you mentioned, but it did also fail to raise the age to 21 uh, for the purchase of semi-automatic weapons. And there was a measure coupled with that that would have allowed students to officially report concerns about potential threats. Give us your thoughts generally on what passed and what didn't this year in Olympia. I think there was definitely a good push, especially towards because this was the end of the session um, for bills. And I think, again, bump stocks was a huge success because it showed that um, we were at least able to make change on this issue. But I think, again, one of our key call to actions is raising the age from 18 to 21. And it's unfortunate that this didn't pass, considering that um, this would have a huge impact on who is able to purchase a gun and limiting the likelihood that someone who is um, either still in school or just getting out of school could return back with, uh, you know, these weapons and kill massive amounts of people. Well, you're part of the Washington State Legislative Youth Advisory Council, which uh, meets every year with state legislators to discuss issues. What are your plans when you meet with them next? I think I definitely want us to take a stance on this. Um, this last year, we mostly advocated for bills concerning um, foster care and homelessness for youth. 
but I would love to see the conversation turn around to focus more on youth who are impacted by gun violence and making sure that we are able to include them in the conversation when we're talking about policies uh, in order to ensure that their voices are heard because again there are kids that face gun violence every single day and it's an actual reality for them um, so making sure that whenever we're discussing policies or things that should be passed that we make sure that they are included in the conversation and allowed to bring their own perspective to the table. There's also a walkout that is planned, and I should mention that we are recording this on Tuesday, March 13th, uh, a day before the scheduled school walkout on March 14th. People will not be hearing this program until next Wednesday, but I'm wondering, what are your plans for the walkout? So I was actually part of a group of, I think it's now about 100 students who are organizing walkouts at their own schools, mostly in Washington State, but we also had some students from Connecticut and Texas. Um, and so I was helping to organize that. And at my own school, we are having um, a walkout in order to, again, call attention to these issues, but also mobilize the youth and let them know that there's a march that they can attend um, and give them more of a platform to advocate. You know, I know that the Seattle School Board has issued a statement regarding the walkouts, but I'm wondering if your particular school has been accommodating of the plan. Yes, so our district hasn't passed an exact resolution, but our principal did send out a letter to uh, our community, and it was extremely supportive, and um, in it he talked about how they were supportive of um, the free speech rights of students and how we could get um, excused by our parents and there would be no um, consequences from that. And I think the language of the letter conveyed um, the administration's support for activism, for student activism in general. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to see um the Tacoma administration doing that for the students. Absolutely. So you're also going to be taking part in a panel on Saturday the 17th with uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal at Garfield High School. Uh, She's very supportive of what you and other students are doing on gun violence. I'm wondering, what do you plan to say to her when you speak with her? Well, first, I would say that I'm a huge fan, and I'm (laughs) glad that she's um, supporting us in this. And one big thing is that I want any elected officials or just really adults in general to see this movement as a time where they can truly support the youth and amplify their voices. And so when Pramila Jayapal is talking to um, other members of Congress, I want her to bring the stories of the students to the table and say, this is what they're experiencing, this is what they want, and this is what we should do for them. Because again, these members of Congress have the means to enact change and they, with the youth and by amplifying our voices, um, we can ensure that legislation is passed that actually protects us. Um, And this is extremely important for really anyone who has a platform to use it to uplift the uh, voices of the youth. You know, Congress has failed to act in any meaningful way, uh, basically since Columbine, 
if you go back and you know you sort of review all of these uh, terrible mass shootings that have happened in this country, there's been no major policy movement at the federal level. And you know, a lot of people get the sense that your generation is going to be the one to finally take on gun safety successfully in this country, particularly as you get older. What are your thoughts on that? Um, that's, I think, definitely the idea that we're trying to go for, and I think it's being shown by the mass mobilization of youth across the country, um, in cities all across the United States, uh, we're hoping to see 40, 50,000 people showing up and marching with us. And I think that will definitely, one, bring attention to the issue, and two, force these legislators to face the people that uh, their policies actually impact and know that just because we're under 18 um, and just because we aren't able to vote yet doesn't mean that they don't um, answer to us and that they still and that they aren't held accountable to us because again we're there's four million youth that are going to be able to vote in the November elections this year and this March is going to be a reminder to the legislators that we are watching them and we will vote um, and we will make sure that if they are not um, upholding um, our voices and addressing our concerns that they won't have a spot anymore. I think that's tremendous. So I know that fundraising is one of the issues that you are most focused on right now for the March. How much are you needing to raise and where can people donate? Yeah, so we are asking for about $50,000, and this will cover costs from um, permits. This will cover the cost for sound staging um, by promotional materials. And we actually have a GoFundMe. Um, if you just search March for Our Lives Seattle, GoFundMe um, will be one of the first. Currently, we have nearly $16,000, but again, we still need um, over 30000 more in, to make this march even happen because again, it unfortunately costs a lot of money to um, pull these things off. So we need that money um, in order to have a march at all and to ensure that it's a safe march and a successful march. Well, I will put that information up for people on the SoundCloud page and also on the webpage. But I just want to say just how impressive you really are. And just to thank you for everything that, that you're doing. Uh, it's not a not an easy lift what you're doing. It's it's really admirable. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. So Rhiannon Rasaretnam, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. So in addition to the march that is happening in Seattle, you have likely heard about the many other marches that are being staged across the country and the world. Uh, At last count, there were 826 marches happening worldwide. Here in Washington, there are dozens happening all across our state. And if you're not in or near Seattle, there's actually a case to be made for going to the one that is closest to you. I talked with Michelle Straka. Michelle is the leader of Snoqualmie Valley Indivisibles about why she organized an event in North Bend as opposed to joining the march in Seattle. So I chose to do it in North Bend because going in Seattle was great for something like the women's rally, uh, which was a, a protest about a man who grabs women and brags about it and still can win the presidency. But this particular March is about a demand for change, and that isn't going to happen in liberal cities 
where their members of Congress are already voting for safer gun laws. Um, the only way to get these laws in place is if the lawmakers in Republican towns like North Bend get voted out and replaced with people who aren't going to take the NRA cash and will pass the legislation that we need. Um, a big out, a big turnout here in a, a red district shows the Republicans in charge that if they don't do what's right, we're voting them out. So where are people meeting in North Bend and at what time? Well, the rally itself starts at 11 a.m. and goes to 1 p.m. And it's on the four corners, the main intersection of North Bend, which is Bendigo Boulevard and West North Bend Way. Um, And there's plenty of good parking, free parking nearby, all over the place. We are meeting um, at 9 a.m., at the Pioneer Coffee Shop, uh, which is like two doors from the corner, where we're going to make signs together. Um, And there's going to be some voter registration training at 10.30 in the morning, half an hour before the rally starts. But otherwise, like if nobody needs to learn how to register people to vote or needs to join us to make a sign, just show up on the corner. We'll be there. And so you're going to be standing on the corner with signs. It's not necessarily going to be a march. It's going to be more of no, a... it's a rally. It's not... We're not marching anyway. If somebody wants to march around the block, they are more than welcome to. <laughs> but we really are... Just, we, and we've done this before in North Bend. We just stand on the four corners and we hold up our signs and we wait for ca- cars to honk their horns and smile at us or to give us the finger. So there you go. That's what happens on the front lines, I suppose. So if you are interested in finding an event near you, you can go to marchforourlives.com, and I will also have a link to the Event Finder page on the SoundCloud page and also at indivisiblepodcast.org. So the primary season is officially underway with the Texas primary happening on the 6th and the Illinois primaries on Tuesday the 20th. And Indivisible is encouraging groups across the country to endorse a candidate at the U.S. House, Senate and gubernatorial levels. Uh, You may have read about this in a piece that ran recently in Mother Jones entitled Inside Indivisible's Plan to Take Over Democratic Primaries. That sounds good. So Mari Urbina is the political director for Indivisible, and she joins us now to help us understand this endorsement process. Mari Urbina, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be on. So let's start with just a very basic question. Why does Indivisible support groups endorsing candidates? Sure. Well, it certainly feels like a natural next step for us. Um, The endorsement guide, which can be found at indivisible435.org, was published in November, a year out from the midterms. And it was important for us to be talking about how we demystified elections in the same way that we work to demystify Congress. And one of the things that we'd heard was understanding sort of the rules of engagement, especially around gatekeeping, right? There's sort of this um, implicit thing that happens locally around how people are supposed to play in elections. And while we certainly encourage real strategic engagement, um, a real approach to partner and movement building in all of our work, we definitely want indivisibles. We want to support indivisible groups in their current work, which is 
locally identifying what makes sense for their communities. Um, and over the last year and a half, indivisible groups across the country have really transformed what power looks like, yeah. transformed what accountability looks like. And the endorsement program is really sort of this next step to draw on that and um, tell sort of these local stories from an amplified um, standpoint. And so I'm really excited. Um, it's been really amazing to hear from local groups who have used the endorsement guide, what they've learned, what they've built on, how they're sharing out their insights with other groups. Um, and so for us, after the, you know, the few months of, of the endorsement guide being out, we thought it was really important to also uplift that in a, in a really strategic and, and programmatic way. And so we unveiled our national endorsement program, which is a grassroots driven program. Yeah. And I do want to break down exactly how that works. But, you know, you mentioned feedback and I know that there are a few groups who have already done endorsements so far. C- can you tell us a little bit about what they are saying about the process? Yes. So two things that really jump out at me in listening to groups talk about it. One is that it's become a a really important membership recruitment opportunity because it sort of re-energizes current members as well invites new members to engage in something that feels really um, exciting and also difficult, right? These conversations, part of the reason why we created a guide was to unlock some of the conversations and to help, you know, wherever people land, right? Endorsements have to feel right by that local group, they have to feel good about their process, that's key. And if they feel good about their process, we wanna make sure that we're supporting that part of it, right? And from what we've heard, it's that one, it's a great membership driver. It's helped grow a lot of groups. Um, I I think I remember from uh, one of the groups who was sharing out their insights, they said that 40% of the people who voted in their local endorsement process were people who were new to their group. That's that's an astounding number. Yeah, it is. Um, and so for us, that is huge, right? Because really the, the theory of change across the movement is if there are strong local indivisible groups, things will happen, right? right? Whether we're talking about electoral work, we're talking about issue work. If there are strong local groups who have strong leadership and membership, then that, that thriving piece will carry the rest out. And so for me to hear from group leaders that say, we've come out of this as a stronger group and we've come out of this a bigger group is exactly um, the type of programmatic objectives we're aiming to achieve. Now, that's not going to be the case everywhere, right? And I think group leaders are really honest about how challenging it is. And many of them share that the main piece was, again, figuring out that process, making sure it was inclusive, making sure it was accessible. You know, and, and in the guide, it talks about if you can't be there in person, if people have families, like what kinds of considerations are you making um, that really speak to to a process that you're going to be able to stand behind at the end? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And well, so that's the why. And now then let's talk about the how. So how the endorsement process works at the local group level. And, you know, the endorsement guide touches on all of this, uh, and that is available at indivisible435.org. And I will make sure that that is available for people on the SoundCloud page and also at indivisiblepodcast.org. But can, can you bullet point the process for us? How does the endorsement process at the group level ideally work? So one is making sure that you have people in your group who are going to be sort of your designated people to help you figure this out. Um, One of the key things is it can't be just driven really by just one person, because as you know, we want to make sure that the vetting process, once you reach the vetting process, that you feel like it's not a personality thing, that it's actually like a really thorough um, process. So one, it's like, 
let's make sure that you have folks in your groups who are part of, you know, maybe being more specifically focused on elections. Um, the other piece that will be very critical is making sure that you have an understanding, you have a, some sort of way to identify, is this the right thing for you, right? You won't have the answers right away, but if you set up a process, right, what, that talks about how do people vote, what are the voting thresholds, um, how are you announcing it? How are you making a difference in a, in a candidate's race? Uh, how does this align with your values, right? If you tick through those things and you talk to your membership and are, and are really open about, you know, this is the way we think we can make an impact. This is why it's going to make a difference, right? And then you get the people, you get your, you, so you know, get what, the buy-in that way for members. Yeah, you get yeah. the buy-in um, and then you identify a process that everyone has a chance to look at um, and, and maybe weigh into and then you run the process, right? Once you've kind of established a strong process, then you run your process. So um, how does that process work? So it's different everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Even with indivisible. But you submit the candidates, obviously, for review. And uh, and then ultimately, you're going to get to a point where you hold a vote within your membership, right? Yes. So locally, folks hold the vote. Um, some people do it online. Some people do it in person. Um, depending on how their group is made up, and then they announce results, and and usually they have some sort of event, right, to to make sure that people understand this is happening. Right. Well, so let's let's talk about how uh, certain there can be some some stumbles along the way and some some roadblocks that yeah. you know you've already alluded to, but I just would like you to address them directly. Uh, one is that emotions really can run high around this process, especially sure. if you encounter like an ideological split, like maybe we saw with Hillary and Bernie in the 2016 election. Do you have concerns that this process might turn out to be divisive within some groups? So one of the things we like to do is take it away from the personalities, right? And and that's an important thing, I think, to understand in electoral engagement overall. Candidates and policymakers are stewards of our values, right? They are not our favorite best friend, right? And thinking about them in that way is what leads to some divisive and not productive conversations. So when you take that out and you realize that these folks are there to transform how we are represented and your job as someone who's now an influencer in elections is to say, I've built this power by showing up, by taking action. Um, what is my responsibility in exerting that power? And I think when you take it out from personalities and you think about it from a, like, what am I signaling in my community as a group that, you know, these are my values, that these, mm. this is how I care about representation. So I think that's important to take out. And it's, it's hard to, right? Like it, it's, I mean, now that we're this far in, I think it's a little bit different. You don't have that same sort of go-to, but there are other go-tos that people go to when the conversations are hard and when something can easily be sort of hijacked and, and made divisive very quickly. But I would say one is take it out, take it out of the personalities and talk about your big picture goals. What are right. your big picture goals locally? If you're talking about, um, you care about healthcare, if you care about immigration, if you care about town halls and constituent access and power, how is your current elected in your area embodying all those things? And are they? And having a real examination of that. I think one thing that's very real over the last year and a half is for some indivisible leaders who have assumed a tremendous amount of influence through their advocacy over the last year, there are a lot, whether it's partners or candidates, they are eager to get to know indivisibles all across the country. They oh, want yeah. to know who they are, 
they want to go to their meetings. And so that's tremendous. That's power, right? That's power that people are seeking from you. And you get to define how people engage with you, how you share space. And that should not be taken or just given, right? That should be earned. And I think one of the things Indivisibles have taught us over the last year and a half is that tough questions are part of the game, right? Like we went out to town halls and we asked candidate, we asked elected officials really hard questions about healthcare and about dream and about so many other issues. And in the election space, we should carry that same level of, of diligence and responsibility to our values and the cause. Now, that's not to say that in the end, if you've had a real open space for talking about this, a real space for creating a process and accessible, and you still land and say, if we do this, we just don't see any way where this is going to help us achieve our goals or we're going to be stronger because of it, then I, that's very real too, right? And we've sure. still, the central point is strong groups are what, you know, the strong groups are the catalyst for a lot of what we're seeing right now. And we don't want to rupture um, strong groups across the country, but we do want to invite people to have a real conversation about it. Well, so then that leads naturally into my next question, which is what happens if you wind up without a candidate getting a plurality of the vote? Say you have like a three-way race. Would you recommend a runoff? Do you recommend a dual or even multiple endorsements in that case? Does it depend? Yeah, that's a great question. I would not recommend multiple endorsements because the point right? The potency of your endorsement is for it to mean something. Sure. If you're splitting your endorsement, then you're signaling, we don't actually know, right? Um, there's not a sort of fullness in that endorsement, right? It should actually mean something. Does that mean it's doors? It's more door knocking? It's more texting? Does that mean it's more phone calling? Um, so if you can't reach a, a decision, then then you can't reach a decision, right? And then what we in some places is that um, they end up sort of quietly supporting other groups who have locally endorsed in their area. Um, but what we would encourage is certainly like find a path to reaching a decision um, and make sure that that voting threshold is important, but more important, I think, is that process. Because I think if you have folks who are bought into your process, you're going to, you'll likely reach that threshold. Now, the other thing that's critical, and we talked about just a little bit in the last question is really defining your values, right? And making sure that whatever your, your rubric or your sort of vet your own local vetting looks like that that it reflects your values it reflects sure. what you want to see some groups really remarkably across the country have said hey you know what that member of congress never talks to rural counties in our district or that member of congress never has town halls and guess what they're also a democrat so that's the other thing that we're hearing too is that it's it's both a values and also how are you fully showing up for your community and indivisibles are asking really hard questions Yes, they are. And so, yeah, so go back to first principles, I think, is what you're saying. And I, I think that's pretty potent advice. So let's talk about how then the national endorsement process works. So once a group determines the candidate that they are going to endorse, they submit that candidate to Indivisible in D.C. on your end. What then happens next? Great. So then um, a, pop, a form is populated or like an Excel doc is populated with all of the nominations that are coming in. Um, we're doing four different waves of it so that we can sort of try to have a process that vets everyone that moves on a certain time frame. Well, since you just brought that up, I will ask, and I know that the first deadline just passed. So when are the next three deadlines happening in this process? So the next one is happening April 9th. So we encourage individuals who haven't engaged in a local endorsement to be thinking about it now if sure. they want to submit for a national endorsement. 
So that is April 9th and really critical for those primaries that are happening in May. That's sort of how, how you should be thinking about it is if you want an endorsement, you want to make sure you get in at least a, a week or two ahead of election day so that you're having some impact, yep. um, ideally more time, but that's at least sometime. Um, and just as a reminder, the May primaries are in Ohio, North Carolina, West Virginia, Idaho, Pennsylvania, Arkansas, Kentucky, Georgia, and Nebraska. Um, and then we will have another round of, of vetting in May and another round in um, July. Yeah, because we have primaries that are happening all throughout this season, and it varies by state. So you have a list of candidates then on your end that you put into an Excel spreadsheet, and those are the candidates that uh, groups have submitted for endorsement. What happens next? Sure. And then um, then we talked with the organizing team and asked what, you know, one of the things I should have mentioned in the local endorsement piece that we encourage in the guide is making sure that groups, local groups, are also talking to other indivisible groups in their area um, so that before they reach a decision, they have an understanding of, you know, is could we make this endorsement even more potent sure. by having... Three and three groups instead so of one. So you encourage group. coalitions, is what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We absolutely encourage coalitions. And so, in that first round of vetting, we we talked to organizing and, and asked them, "What is that? Did those coalition conversations happen locally? Because um, it's really important for us to also understand, you know, not just one group, but what is that community? You know, what are we hearing from the community from indivisible groups? Um, so that's an important consideration to understand. So we we ask questions around that. Got it. Um, and then from there, we move on to the candidate questionnaire round where we issue the candidates a questionnaire, um, a federal level questionnaire and a gubernatorial level questionnaire. Can you give us an idea of what's in that questionnaire? So actually, at the end of it, we will be sharing the questionnaire with groups who requested an endorsement. OK, So that's where you'll get to see it. We think it's a powerful tool for accountability. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are sharing out what we're learning. Sure. Um, and then after the candidate questionnaire, um, there's also a vet that just happens on every candidate where we run just like overall vetting on, um, you know, whatever public history they have running just an overall vetting of, of the candidate. And you also think about certain factors like, is this a first time candidate? Has this candidate performed well in a, say, a past race, maybe at like the legislative, the state legislative level, things like that, right? Certainly. Yeah. One of the things we talk about in the guide and we also talk about is viability for sure. You, yeah. We should always be thinking viability. But but I, I guess for us, it's not, you know, if we were just concerned about viability, I'm sure that they would look different. Um, I think it's a balance of viability. How competitive are you? But also what are your values, right. um, not just in policy, but also in, in issues of equity and and building an inclusive staff. Um, and you've also mentioned diversity uh, is, is is a key component as well. Women, people of color, uh, members of other marginalized communities and so forth. That's right. Um, and one of the things that we ask about is, you know, how are you, in addition to questions around policy, there are questions around, you know, how are you going to, um, like, are you going to support paid family leave? Are you going to support for your staff? Are you going to support... Um, like building safe spaces for your staff to work in, right? Reduce discrimination. So it's, you know, some of these things perhaps may seem obvious, but there are also important political education opportunities for candidates to know that our movement is paying attention to um, and cares deeply about. Well, so then who decides on your end? Is it a committee of people who make the determination ultimately? 
Yeah, it's it's well, I would say in terms of the committee, it's a group of folks um, in our DC organization that have represent different equities, right? They represent um, organizing equities, they represent political equities, they represent um, sort of our leadership level equities, um, and then we make a final recommendation. Um, but the thing is, in the end, we don't decide, the groups decide. Sure, of course. And then so the next step is you send the ballot back to groups for a vote. Yeah. It's it's sort of like uh, how, you know, the House will vote on a bill, then the Senate will vote on a bill, and they have to go to committee, and then it goes back to both yeah. chambers before it becomes that's a law. Great, I love that example. Well, I watched Schoolhouse Rock when I was a kid, so that's that's before your time. But anyway, so yes, yeah, so then Indivisible sends the ballot back to groups to get their okay on the endorsement, right? That's right. We send the um, ballot to groups in the respective area. So if it's, you know, it's only groups in that gubernatorial candidate state or only groups in that congressional candidate's congressional district. So if you don't get one, it's because you're a local group didn't nominate in that area. All right. So obviously there are benefits for candidates in having a national endorsement. Um, and we've talked a little bit about some of the benefits for groups for doing the endorsement at the group level. But once all this comes together, once the national endorsement and the group endorsement are in sync, what are some of the things that then essentially become unlocked for local groups? Great. So one of the key things is access to national digital volunteer recruitment We will follow up in the endorsed candidates area and recruit more volunteers to to that race. Which you've already said is actually it's a big component. It's it's very much a recruitment tool. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we believe, you know, the people agency and power in in endorsements is really powerful. And that's what we're leaning into in this program. Um, We're also going to be offering support and strategic guidance from regional or statewide organizers. Um, We'll be supporting with press operations, so support in press releases about endorsements, helping with media outreach. We'll be supporting with social graphics for the endorsed candidates so that groups will have nice social graphics to um, distribute as well. We will also make sure that the candidates are displayed at Indivisible 435 under our list of endorsed candidates. Now, that's actually very interesting. So we're going to be able to actually go on uh, Indivisible435.org and see who is endorsed whom across the country. Yes. That's exciting. Yeah, that's right. Very exciting. And and also, again, like a great accountability tool to look back and be like, here are the people we put forward. How yeah. are they showing up? Um, and then finally, if it's helpful um, helping to organize a launch event or any key election events with surrogates, um, if there are key moments where we can time it, we'd love to figure out if we can get staff out there or other surrogates. Um, that part we're still building out, but we certainly want to be thinking about it. Excellent. Well, so before we go, I just want to get your your take briefly on on something, and that is the DCCC's involvement. That's the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They've been involved uh, with some congressional races around the country, and there has been some acrimony, particularly uh, in Texas 7, uh, that's Houston's district. It appears that the DCCC tried to discredit a Democratic candidate favored by progressives, Laura Moser, uh, by calling her a, quote, Washington insider and saying that she is, quote, shown outright disgust for life in Texas. And this drew a very strong reaction from uh, Indivisible Houston. But I'm wondering, what is National Indivisible's response to the DCCC's actions here? So we look to local Indivisible leadership to really drive that conversation. And Indivisible leaders in Houston were very clear about how they felt it with the DCCC engaging in that way. Um, we support them in their assessment of the case. Um, we support all of our local groups who are engaging how, who are really the ones living there and building their communities and strengthening their communities. And so that's, that's 
that's central for us. You know, yeah. even when you think about how we built out this program, it's grassroots driven from the beginning till the end. Um, and we think that's what politics is about is making sure there's strong local leadership. So the D triple, like we don't take our cues from the D triple C, we take our cues from local leadership. And we think that local leadership, local group leaders should continue to build um, strong movements and strong um, support for the candidates that they're excited about that reflect their values, not what national campaign committees in D.C. are telling them to do. So it's basically bottom up. It's uh, it's it's the opposite of what the DCCC uh, has done is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Mari Urbina, thank you so much for clarifying all of this. Uh, this is a very exciting process, and we're uh, we're really happy to have had you on to help tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for everything you do, too. And that'll do it for this week's show. As usual, you will find links to everything that I talked about today at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you have not done so already, please do subscribe to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And since we're talking about email, and I love emails, by the way, so please keep sending them to indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Also, my Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Rhiannon Rosaretnam, Michelle Straka, and Mari Urbina. My special thanks to Emily Phelps and Maggie Cuevas. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.